Greetings to listeners all around the world. Welcome to Safe Dividend Investing's podcast number 152 on January 25th of 2024. My name is Ian Duncan McDonald. In today's podcast, I will be answering two questions. Every day, I hear from readers of my books and listeners to my podcasts. They keep me current with what is now of concern to investors. So please keep sending your questions to my personal email address, McDonald at hotmail.com. Question number one. Why would investment advisors like to see the elderly banned from managing their own investment portfolios? No matter how old you are, giving control of your portfolio to an investment advisor who is paid to separate you from your money seems to verge on the illogical. Every day I receive releases from the body that polices the investment industry. They report horrendous incidents, such as the lawyer who had been barred from practicing law because of his dementia. Hundreds of thousands of dollars were stolen from his portfolio by a trusted investment advisor. These investment criminals seem to get off with just a fine and being barred from the industry. Is their punishment so light because they are a self-regulating industry? In a January 19th article, a well-known financial writer suggested, and I quote, that retirees should stick to golf, bridge, and Ironman events and stay away from managing their own investments. He advised that elderly amateurs should set up a small investing account on the side with an online broker to scratch that itch to manage their own investments and leave your retirement account with the advisor. I found his comments demeaning, ignorant, and dismissive. He went on to infer that all 80-year-olds are on the verge of senility and would be unable to manage their investments. He had reached this insight after receiving an email from an 80-year-old doctor who was worried about his ability to continue to manage his portfolio. The financial writer went on to further advise that you should start early to find an advisor because at any age, it can be an exhausting process of seeking recommendations from friends and family. My question would be, why are these friends and family any more capable of determining the integrity and value of an investment advisor than any 80-year-old with decades of experience in judging character? In my first book, Income and Wealth from Self-Directed Investing, written five years ago, I wrote about an 80-year-old friend, a widow, 
who asked me if it was normal for her investment advisor to be losing $100,000 every year. This woman, let us call her Miss Innocence, sought my help because she was frightened that her portfolio would be entirely depleted within a few years. For the previous 20 years, an investment advisor employed by a major national bank had been managing her portfolio. In her retirement, her portfolio was her sole source of income. That portfolio had lost $300,000 in the last three years. The dream of passing an inheritance onto her children and grandchildren now seemed remote. I told her that I would look at her portfolio, but there was no reason the value of a carefully managed portfolio had to shrink. It is all a matter of controlling income and expenses. Upon retiring, she had told her advisor that she wished to only withdraw a modest income of $3,500 per month from her portfolio. The investment advisor had assured her that withdrawing such an amount from the portfolio could be easily provided for the rest of her life. Considering the amount she had invested, in my opinion, she should have been able to withdraw double the $3,500 without impacting the total value of the portfolio. After reviewing her portfolio, I told her what I did not understand was why the investment advisor had put most of her money into low-interest bonds, preferred shares, and questionable mutual funds. These were investments with a little potential for increasing the value of the portfolio. She replied that she had never paid attention to what the advisor was doing with her money. All she had ever looked at was the total amount in her portfolio. Her only concern had been receiving that $3,500 every month. She said that she would now look more closely at her portfolio. A few days later, she reported that the investment advisor's annual fee of 1% of her portfolio's value was, on closer inspection, 2%. She had not realized that she was paying for additional transaction fees every month over and above the agreed to 1%. Her investment portfolio was experiencing more chargeable transactions in one month than I would see in my portfolio in 10 years. These transactions were generating thousands of dollars in fees annually for the bank. I then reviewed the bank's full service contract. It detailed the dozens of fees that a client agrees to to pay upon signing up for the investment account. The legalese was written in the smallest font and displayed in such a compressed format that it was almost impossible to read. Could it be 
They do not want their clients to read the terms of this investment contract. This reluctance to make their written material transparent and easy to comprehend is also present in the basic investment information that thousands of unsophisticated investors receive from the bank. Miss Innocence told me of the many widows in her senior's apartment building who, from a lifetime of saving and the sale of their homes, had a net worth of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Most of these women had only an elementary education. Many had never written a check until forced to do so after their husbands died. Their husbands had done them no favor in taking care of all the family's money matters. Unable to comprehend the bank's basic investment advice, their pride prevented them from revealing their financial ignorance to the bank. Being suspicious of anyone prying into their financial affairs, these women felt forced to park their wealth in minimal interest savings accounts. Here, it was being depleted by their living expenses and inflation. Such widows really do face the possibility of outliving their savings. They need help and they're not getting it from the investment industry. Investment advisors seem to prefer that investors be ignorant and timid. They discourage questions regarding how they will handle your money. Given the freedom to do as they please with a customer's money, many seem unable to resist manipulating a client's account to their own financial advantage. Too many behave like sharks. You are the prey. Buyer, beware. The investment industry works hard at making millions believe that only qualified investment advisors could possibly make intelligent investment choices. That anyone, after reading any of my books, could generate better capital gains and realize more income without their assistance raises the question as to what are investment advisors doing to earn the thousands of dollars they charge their clients. Investment advisors certainly do not see themselves in the business of educating clients about investing. If clients are unable to distinguish between a good, safe investment and a bad, risky investment, the investment industry sees this as the client's problem, not their problem. Based on what they seem to prefer adding to clients' portfolios, makes you wonder if investment advisors can or are willing to recognize the difference between the two. The 1-5% to 5% of their portfolio's value that clients pay their advisors each year may seem like a small amount. However, over 20 years, a client could pay hundreds 
of thousands of dollars for investment advisor services. They pay it whether the value of the portfolio increases or decreases. These advisory fees represent the loss of hundreds of thousands of dollars that could have been safely invested in providing additional dividend income to their client. Clients seem to have difficulty in recognizing that the first loyalty financial advisors have is to the bank that employs them. Like all employees, it is an advisor's responsibility to contribute to their employer's profits. The investment charges and fees you pay are not going to the advisor, they are going to the bank. While advisors have varied compensation plans, the bank, not the advisor, gets the greatest percentage of any fees charged. The bank believes it deserves the bigger share because it gives the financial advisor credibility and access to millions of potential bank customers to prospect. Despite their claims of making investment decisions in the best interest of their clients, if one mutual fund was paying a 5% commission to the bank, while another almost identical fund was paying a 4% commission, which one? do you think gets presented to the clients? Investors are oblivious of the benefits a bank is receiving from the investments they recommend. Rarely do investors question their advisor's so-called professional advice. Even if a question were to be raised by a client, the advisors are trained to respond with jargon, and convoluted explanations that confuse and intimidate those who dare to question their investment choices. All salesmen, including investment advisors, are measured by their ability to convince people to sign binding contracts. If a salesman's income can be doubled by convincing you to buy an investment, be assured that he will say whatever it takes to get your signature or approval. Sales commissions do not bring out the best in people. They fan the flames of greed and ruthlessness. To keep their jobs, investment advisors must meet quotas. To be deserving of a promotion, they must generate more sales than their peers. Successful investment advisors often receive the title of vice president as an incentive. The title gives the advisor greater credibility with their clients and prospective clients. The title costs the bank nothing and helps increase bank revenue. Recognize that investment advisors with the title of vice president on their business cards are the real sharks. A large bank might have hundreds of vice presidents selling investment products. Standing out from your peers is never easy. 
the typical investment advisor handles about 150 clients. If they, on average, work a typical 2,000 hours in a year, this could allow an investment advisor to spend 13 hours with each of their 150 clients. However, clients die. They get lured away by competitors, and some are discarded when they lose all their investment money. Replacing one lost client may require developing relationships with 10 prospective clients. This takes time. That, combined with clerical work, training, and meetings, leaves no time to research how to increase the value of one client's portfolio. An investment advisor may have as little as an hour a year to maintain their relationship with a client. Small accounts may not even get a phone call. Securities Commission surveys confirm small investors would rarely be in contact with their advisors more than once a year, and many would have no contact. Yet, they are supposedly paying for the professional services of an investment advisor. Wouldn't small and large clients be better off managing their own investments? If you ever realize that you're not getting what you're paying for and complain, you will be quickly reminded that you signed a full service fee schedule. If you sued, the bank's lawyers would immediately present this piece of paper as proof of your compliance with the investment guidance you gave them. A legal action would be a lost cause. The banks employ platoons of salaried lawyers to protect their interests. Miss Innocence was not aware of what went on behind the scenes at the bank other than to realize that it was not working for her. She followed the steps laid out in my books. Within 90 days, using all the free investment tools that she had not known existed, she was carefully buying hundreds of thousands of dollars of shares in financially strong stocks, paying high dividends. Miss Innocence's gravest error had been in giving an investment advisor control of her portfolio. It seemed to be a wonderful idea because it was one less task that she would have to be bothered with. For the bank, it was like being handed a signed blank check. They did not miss their opportunity to milk her portfolio for all that their conscience and loose laws allowed. When her portfolio was declining each year, she had naively accepted the investment advisor's explanation that it was just the nature of investing conservatively. She accepted that this meant she should not be expecting any growth. My first investment book was written five years ago. I wrote that book as a reference that my wife and my children could use to safely manage my portfolio if I were not able to do it. Since 2019, 
I've written five more investment books. Each book was an evolution of making it easier and easier for someone with little experience to become a successful, self-directed investor. Miss Innocence is now about 85, still managing her growing portfolio and thanking me for showing her how to do it. She has come a long way for not realizing that her income was being derived from the investment advisors liquidating a piece of her portfolio every month. It was not the income from dividends that she assumed it was. She now knows that 100% of her income is from dividends. She understands now why she sees steady growth in the value of her total portfolio. When Miss Innocence finally understood that she was in control of her income, she sent me an email in which she stated, I realize that the stress I lived with is slowly dissipating and my face is relaxing. It is almost impossible to believe that I can feel safe, that I can trust my own judgment, though, in all fairness, you did help even with that. The decisions were mine, of course, but I had to be discerning, learning all the time why I took a specific stock and invested in it. I am one of possibly millions of people who are discovering the benefits of self-directing. Question number two. What is your investment horizon and strategy? By using the word horizon, are you asking what is the objective of my investing? My first objective is to never lose money. The second objective is to provide myself with a reliable, generous, ever-growing dividend income that I can live on. The third objective is to grow the size of my portfolio. I've achieved these three objectives by only investing equally in 20 financially strong companies who have a long history of paying ever higher dividend payouts. With a portfolio of 20 strong companies, I have sufficient diversification that if one of the 20 should encounter an unusual problem, the other carefully chosen stocks in the portfolio will pay dividends and show capital gain to offset any setback from a deviant stock that would only represent 5% of the portfolio's total value. I keep the number of stocks as close to 20 as I can because the idea is to make the management of the portfolio as easy as possible. More stocks require more monitoring and more attention. I seek to realize a dividend return of 6% for my portfolio. This means carefully balancing the financially strongest stocks that pay lower dividend yields with stocks who are not the strongest but pay higher dividend yields. It is very easy before purchasing a stock to look back at decades of historical records showing share prices and dividend payouts. These records 
establish the character of the company and whose shares you are investing. The management of a company does not control share prices, but they do control dividend payouts. Many companies to maintain constant dividend yield percents will increase their dividend payouts even during market crashes. Such companies strengthen your portfolio and your dividend return. Investing this way is not only effective, but is not complicated or difficult. It is what I teach in my books. Thanks for listening. If you wish more information on investing and stock scoring, please visit my website, www.saferbetterdividendinvesting.com.